Uh, yeah. Katie, you're going to read. We've got two readings today. And Katie, you going to read the first one in Isaiah yes. chapter 7. Isaiah chapter 7, and we're reading verses 1 to 17. When Ahaz, son of Jotham, the son of Isaiah, was king of Judah, King Rezan of Aram and Pekah, son of Ramalia, king of Israel, marched up to fight against Jerusalem, but they could not overpower it. Now the house of David was told, Aram has allied itself with Ephraim. So the hearts of Ahaz and his people were shaken, as the trees of the forest are shaken by the wind. Then the Lord said to Isaiah, Go out, you and your son Shear Jashub, to meet Ahaz at the pool of at the end of the aqueduct of the upper pool, on the road to the launderer's field. Say to him, Be careful, keep calm, and don't be afraid. Do not lose heart because of these two smouldering stubs of firewood, because of the fierce anger of Rezin and Aram, and of the son of Ramalia. Aram, Ephraim, and Ramalia's son have plotted your ruin, saying, Let us invade Judah, let us tear it apart, and divide it among ourselves, and make the son of Tabeel king over it. Yet this is what the sovereign Lord says, It will not take place, it will not happen. For the head of Aram is Damascus, and the head of Damascus is only resin. Within 65 years, Ephraim will be too shattered to be a people. The head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is only Ramalia's son. If you do not stand firm in your faith, you will not stand at all. Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz, Ask the Lord your God for a sign, whether it in the highest, deepest depths or in the highest heights. But Ahaz said, I will not ask. I will not put the Lord to the test. Then Isaiah said, Hear now, you house of David. Is it not enough to try the patience of humans? Will you try the patience of my God also? Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. He will be eating curds and honey when he knows enough to reject the wrong and choose the right. For before the boy knows enough to reject the wrong and choose the right, the land of the two kings you dread will be laid waste. The Lord will bring on you and your people and on the house of your father a time unlike any since Ephraim broke away from Judah. He will bring the king of Assyria. And now from Matthew chapter 1, verse 18 to 25. This is how the birth of Jesus Christ came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be with child through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was a righteous man and did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived is her in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him and took Mary home as his wife. But he had no union with her until she gave birth to a son, and he gave him the name Jesus. Well, what are you thinking as you read that part of the Bible? I can't help but think, oh, Mary and Joseph, surely you could have come up with a better story than a virgin birth. 
I mean, sure, they're, they're a bit kneecapped, right, by this unplanned pregnancy business. That narrows down the options for the stories that you could come in. But I think they could have spent a bit more time maybe doing a whiteboard session, brainstorming some other stories to kind of cover up this thing. You know, what about this one? I, you know, Mary was just testing out some of Joseph's carpentry work when one of the table legs broke and they both slipped and fell over and they just happened to have sex. It was just an accident. We didn't mean to. But no, they decided to go with a virgin birth, seemingly to cover up their promiscuity. And that's actually what a lot of people think about the virgin birth, isn't it? Either this is some fictional morphing of other more ancient origin stories, which actually isn't true, or there's just some outlandish cover-up story for sexual immorality going on here. But if you have a look there in verse 18 of this passage, Matthew writes, this is how the birth of Jesus, the Messiah, came about. And that word birth there is similar to the word genealogy in verse 1 of chapter 1 in Matthew's gospel. It's this word that has the root of Genesis. Here in the early chapters of Matthew, Matthew is giving us the genesis of Jesus. He's giving us the origin story of Jesus the Messiah. And as we dig into this origin story of Jesus the Messiah today, we're going to see that this is anything but an unplanned accident. This was always part of God's eternal plan to establish his eternal kingdom and a new creation. And so what we're going to have a look, we're going to kind of get a, get an idea of the dilemma that Joseph finds himself in because of what he thinks has gone on in verses 18 and 19. But then we're going to see God insert himself into the story and look at how God's will is going to prevail through the origins of Jesus, his Messiah, through the rest of the passage. So let's have a look at Joseph's will in verse 18 to 90. Have a look at how Joseph actually views the situation and how he plans to deal with it. This is what it says. This is how the birth of Jesus, the Messiah, the origin story of the Messiah, this is how it came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph. But before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace. He had in mind to divorce her quietly. So Mary and Joseph, they're pledged to be married. They were betrothed, which was much more binding in the first century context than we're used to. They were essentially legally married. Their, their families had likely made an agreement, a dowry had probably been paid, and they'd signed the registry, so to speak. It was locked and loaded. And now they were awaiting the day when Joseph would take Mary home and consummate their marriage through sex. But before that day had come, before they had come together, as Matthew says, aka had sex, we're told Mary was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. But from verse 19, Joseph's not yet aware of that. In fact, Joseph seems to assume some pretty sound logic, to be fair to him, that Mary, she's pregnant, I didn't have sex with her, so she must have been unfaithful and committed adultery and cheated on me before we've even had any sex. And so in verse 19, we say we see because Joseph, her husband, he's a man faithful to the law, he's going to want to uphold the law here. Now, in Deuteronomy 22, verses 13 to 21, the righteous punishment for sexual immorality in a case like this within marriage or betrothal was actually the death penalty. But because of the Roman rule, that didn't happen much anymore within the Jewish community. They weren't allowed to do it as much. 
but by right, still upholding the law, Joseph, who you can imagine would have been hurting and feeling betrayed, he, he still wanted to be faithful to the law. And so to do that, he could have pursued justice by taking Mary to a very public trial to expose this perceived sin that he thinks she's committed and bring shame and public disgrace on her and her family. But in verse 19, we see Joseph doesn't want to expose her to public disgrace. So still obedient to the law, and yet with mercy and compassion, which is a sign of his godliness, even though he would have felt wronged, he has in mind to divorce her quietly. Now, what a picture of godliness this is for us. Here is someone who thinks he's been wronged and sinned against. And while still pursuing appropriate consequences under God, he seeks to love and care for Mary who, thinks, who he thinks has sinned against him. He doesn't want to bring her any further shame. He's not gossiping or looking for vengeance against her. He still has his perceived perpetrators good at heart. What a lesson that is for us. But now, of course, Mary hasn't sinned at all in this. Matthew's told us that she's pregnant by the Holy Spirit, but Joseph doesn't know that yet. But it's interesting, isn't it, that even in the first century, his first logical assumption would be our first go-to conclusions as well if this happened today. See, sometimes I think we have this view of first century people like they're, they're a bunch of dumb, gullible, hillbilly hicks who had no idea about science and the way the world worked. And so they all too quickly just moved to these supernatural assumptions and conclusions. But you don't see that with Joseph, do you? He seems to know how pregnancy works and he comes up with a logical, rational, scientific-based hypothesis for how Mary could be pregnant apart from having sex with him. I didn't have sex with her, she's pregnant, so she must have had an affair. And so because we have this hillbilly gullible kind of hick view of people in the past, because of course, you know, we're so much smarter nowadays, it's common for people to look at miracles like the virgin birth or miracles like Jesus' resurrection. We look at those miracles and we think, well, because it doesn't fit with our everyday experience of the world around us, it mustn't be true. But this is the point of a miracle. They're not supposed to fit in with our everyday experience around us. Joseph isn't walking around expecting supernatural things to happen left, right and centre either. Miracles are miracles because they are unique and ex extraordinary events, showing us that God is in control beyond our perception of the universe because he sits over this universe. And when he decides to act in an extraordinary way in this universe, these miracles are always to point us to what he is doing. That's the point of miracles. They're supposed to stand out. And so we have a view of a God who is in control of the ordinary, but he also transcends the ordinary. And he's at work both through the ordinary and the extraordinary. And so it actually takes something extraordinary for Joseph, wouldn't it, to believe otherwise, to believe that God was intervening in some magnificent way in this virgin birth. And that's exactly what happens. Something extraordinary happens to Joseph in verse 20, as God tells Joseph his will, which is going to happen. So have a look at verse 20 as we look at God's will. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. So after Jesus had considered divorcing Mary quietly, 
now God sovereignly intervenes to ensure his will is done. And he speaks to Joseph, Joseph through an angel of the Lord in a dream. And this is another extraordinary event on top of the virgin birth. It's extraordinary because dreams are an extremely rare way for God to communicate, especially in the New Testament. In fact, the only dreams given by God in the New Testament are here at the start of Matthew's gospel. And there's one with Pilate's wife at the end of Matthew's gospel. And that's it. And I think why we're seeing a concentration of dreams at the start of Matthew's gospel, we're going to see four more next week in chapter two. It's because we're seeing God taking initiative in guiding his will to be done. And the other extraordinary thing about these dreams and why they're here, I think, is because this is the first time God has intervened and directly communicated with his people for over 400 years in the context of the storyline of the Bible. See, after the books of Nehemiah and Malachi, who's kind of the final prophet, the Jews speak of these 400 years of the silence of God, where his people had been so unfaithful that eventually God had been silent and weren't communicating to his people anymore. And so this is a significant moment here in Matthew 1, because God is now again communicating with his people to show that his eternal plan of redemption is coming to fulfillment. And so then within the content of this dream, God actually gives Joseph two commands with two reasons behind each of those commands. So have a look at the first command that he gives Joseph. He says, don't be afraid to take Mary home as your wife. Don't shrink from this responsibility, Joseph. Continue your marriage with Mary. Take her home as your wife. And what's the reason why? Because what is conceived, what is genesis in her is from the Holy Spirit. Now, what is the significance of the Holy Spirit here in Matthew 1? Because Matthew stresses God, the Spirit, his involvement in this virgin birth twice. So you see that at the end of verse 18, Mary's pregnant through the Spirit. And at the end of verse 20, what he says, what is conceived in her is by the Spirit. And that word for conceived there, again, it comes out of that root word for Genesis as well. And it means to bear. In fact, if you just have a look at chapter 1, verses 2 to 16, it's actually the same word for father that is repeated again and again all throughout the genealogy. So Abraham conceived or he bore Isaac. Isaac conceived or he bore Jacob and so on. So why is it that the Holy Spirit that conceives Jesus here is so significant? Well, let me give you three quick things about what I think is significant about the Holy Spirit conceiving or genesising here um, with Jesus. The first one is when it comes to creation of humanity. It's the spirit who is portrayed as the giver of life. So have a look at Genesis 1. At the beginning of creation, it is the spirit of God who is present as God speaks the universe into existence. And then in, as you come to Genesis 2, the, the word for spirit and breathe, they're the same words. So when God creates humanity, it is the spirit of life, the Holy Spirit that is breathed into the man to give him life. And so the Holy Spirit is involved in the beginning of any human life, including ours. The Holy Spirit is this agent of life in creation. But the Spirit's role here in Matthew 1 does seem to be more than that because Jesus isn't just any human. 
And this brings us to the second thing of the significance of the Holy Spirit, because particularly in the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit is shown not only as the agent of life in this creation, but he's also the agent of life for the new creation, for eternal life. Now, our world as we know it now has been tainted by the impacts of sin and suffering. You don't have to look far to see that. All humans are under the judgment of death for our sin. But the prophets in the Old Testament spoke of this day when God's Spirit would come in passages like Ezekiel 37 with the Valley of Dry Bones or Isaiah 32 or Joel 2. And God would bring salvation from the judgment of sin as he brought in this new age, the age of the Spirit, the age of the resurrection, a recreation, a new creation where his people would be saved and regenerated by the Spirit to live in God's eternal kingdom the kingdom of heaven as children of God. And so the spirit conceiving Jesus here is not just speaking about creation, but it's speaking to the new creation to come. And thirdly, in the Old Testament, the spirit empowers this particular agent of God's salvation to bring all this into fruition. See, the Old Testament pointed forward to this messianic figure in passages like Isaiah 42 and 61, who would be spirit-filled person and who would come establishing God's eternal kingdom. And so we're talking here in Matthew 1 about the origins of Jesus the Messiah, the one who would come bringing salvation, the one who would come bringing the new creation empowered by the Spirit. We're not talking here necessarily, we're not talking about the eternal son and the origins of the eternal son who is without beginning. The second member of the Trinity is an eternal one. He was not made. But this extraordinary moment in human history through the virgin birth, which we call the incarnation, is where God's eternal son is becoming fully human and coming into this world as God's Messiah. And so this message of uh, God's Messiah bringing the new creation is further seen as we see uh, God's second command that he gives to Joseph and the second reason he gives to Joseph and the names that Jesus is called all throughout this passage. So God says to Joseph, Mary will give birth to a son and you are to give him the name Jesus. Because, that's the command, the reason why, because he will save his people from their sins. Now, I'm somewhat envious of Joseph and Mary here because they had all the stress of naming a child taken away and they were given it kind of up on a platter um, by God to name this son Jesus. You know, naming a child today comes with immense sort of pressure. You've got to kind of find the Goldilocks zone for a name for a kid. It's got to be not too common, not too out there. You've got to try and avoid bogan spelling like names with dashes in them, Ladasha or something like that. You've got to put the name through a bully test to ensure that you know kids aren't going to use it to pick on the kid down the track. And maybe if you can get the added bonus of having a cool meaning with that name, that's kind of the Goldilocks zone for coming up with a great name for your child. And we felt this this pressure um, with the naming of our second child, Zara. We'd kind of narrowed it down to three, her, well, we didn't know whether we were having a boy or a girl, so we're narrowing the names down. And it wasn't until Marin was in labor 
and in between her contractions that we were kind of under the pressure to kind of lock these two names in for a boy and a girl. Lots of pressure coming up with a name. But God here is the one who gives Jesus his names, his three names throughout this passage. And the reason that that's really important is because names in the Bible are often significant for the meaning or description behind the person's name. So Esau in the Old Testament, his name means hairy, and that's probably because he was hairy. Or you've got his brother Jacob, whose name is Supplanter, and his name, his name means Supplanter because he supplanted Esau. Or you've got another guy in 1 Samuel 24 called Nabal, and his name means fool or idiot, and he was given that name because he was a fool or idiot. And Jesus is given three names in this passage because of the meaning of the names, the significance behind each one of these names. And so we'll come back to Jesus in a moment, but I want us to move on and just have a look at the name Emmanuel and to think about the meaning behind that. Because this is what God says to Joseph in verse 22, or Matthew kind of kind of points out to us as an aside. He says, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. So notice here how Matthew reminds us again, this prophecy, although it came through the prophet Isaiah, it's really the words of God himself. God himself is pointing forward to this, this extraordinary day in human history 800 years earlier. And this is what God said 800 years earlier. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son. And here's the name. They will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. Now, it's really helpful here to understand the context for which this prophecy is made. And it happens in Isaiah 7. Isaiah 7, 14 is the exact kind of, we'll read that in a moment. But in the context of that passage, Ahaz is the king of Israel. And Israel has been asked to join forces. Uh, Ahaz is the king of Judah in the south. And Israel had asked to join forces with Judah to fight against Assyria. But Ahaz, as the king in the south, refused to join with the king in the north. And so the king in the north of Israel, Pekah, and the king of Aram, um, Rezin, they joined, joined forces to come and fight against Jerusalem. And King Ahaz, who's the king over Judah, and the people of Judah, they were afraid because these two kingdoms were coming against them and are not even Assyria yet. And so Isaiah came in chapter 7 to say, don't worry, trust in God. He's faithful. He's with us. He's got our back. But King Ahaz remained unfaithful. And this is what the context of um, the, the, the prophecy is made in. Isaiah, again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz. Ask the Lord your God for a sign, whether in the deepest depths or in the highest heights. But Ahaz said, I will not ask. I will not put the Lord to the test. Then Isaiah said, hear now you house of David, of which Ahaz was a part of. Is it not enough to try the patience of humans? Will you also try the patience of my God also? Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. He will be eating curds and honey when he knows enough to reject the wrong and choose the right. For before the boy knows enough to reject the wrong and choose the right, the land of the two kings you dread will be laid waste. The Lord will bring on you and your people and on the house of your father a time unlike any other since Ephraim broke away from Judah. He will bring the king of Assyria. 
Now, there's lots of conjecture about who may have been this particular son or this sign for King Ahaz in the time uh, in, that this prophecy is made. Some people say, well, maybe it was Hezekiah, but he was already born. Well, maybe it's one of Isaiah's sons because there's some stuff going on with the meaning of Isaiah's sons and their names around this passage. But what we do know is that this son is a particular ruler, it seems, who comes out probably the virgin, the woman is Israel. This, this son of God's people comes out of God's people. And did you see what would come with this sign, with Emmanuel, when he would come? Well, it's actually judgment through Assyria. The idea of eating honey and curds, that's a sign of decimation and complete destruction. And so when this ruler, when this son, Emmanuel, God with us, this sign comes onto the scene, God would bring judgment. And in Ahaz's day, that partial judgment was fulfilled as Assyria came and decimated the north and came and decimated Judah with the exception of Jerusalem. But it's interesting, as, as Isaiah unfolds with the prophecies, you see chapters 7 and 8 as they continue, there's more suffering, there's judgment and darkness to come that's going to come through Assyria for those who continue to be unfaithful, who continue to test God, who continue to disobey God, who continue to rebel against God. But there would be hope tied up with this Emmanuel, with this God, with this figure, one who is ultimately the owner of the land that would experience this judgment, but one who would still ultimately prevail victorious. And so then it moves to this figure in chapter nine, one who would lead God's people out of the darkness and Isaiah 9 says, Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who are in distress. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulon and the land of Naphtali, but in the future, he's going to honour Galilee of the nations by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light on those living in the land of deep darkness. A light has dawned. You've enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest, as warriors rejoice when dividing the plunder. There's going to be this release from oppression. For as in the day of Midian's defeat, you've shattered the yoke of the burdens and the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor. There will be a cessation of war as well in verse 5. Every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, will be fuel for the fire. And this is all going to come with the birth of this ideal son, this ideal ruler, the Messiah. For to us, a child is born, to us, a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. And it's interesting, isn't it? He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. This son, God with us, this messianic figure is being portrayed, one who would bring peace forever. And in chapters 9 and 10 of Isaiah, it continues that judgment is going to come from Assyria, but God will remain faithful to his people. And then again, you get this built, built on this image of Emmanuel, this Messiah in chapter 11, as salvation is going to come through the shoot of Jesse, David's dad, this spirit-filled person. 
And so Isaiah says, a shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse, from his roots a branch will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and of understanding, the spirit of counsel and of might, the spirit of knowledge and fear of the Lord. There's the Holy Spirit with this Messiah. And he will delight in the fear of the Lord. He will not judge by what he sees with his eyes or decide by what he hears with his ears, but with righteousness, he will judge the needy. With justice, he will give decisions for the poor of the earth. He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth through the word of God. With the breath of his lips, he will slay the wicked. Righteousness will be his belt and faithfulness the sash around his waist. And then you get this picture of the new creation that he will bring. The wolf will live with the lamb. The leopard will lie down with the goat. The calf and the lion are yielding together and a little child will lead them. The cow will feed them with the bear. Their young will lie down together and the lion will eat straw like the ox. The infant will play near the cobra's den. The young child will put its hand in the viper's nest. They will neither harm nor destroy. Sin and suffering is going to be removed on all my holy mountain for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And in that day, the root of Jesse, this one in the throne of David, will stand as a banner for all peoples. The nations will rally to him and his resting place will be glorious. In that day, the Lord will reach out his hand a second time to reclaim the surviving remnant of his people from his enemies. And then Isaiah goes on to talk about the unity between the northern and the southern kingdom that will come. And he speaks of a new exodus for there will be a highway for the remnant of his people that is left from Assyria as there was for Israel when they came up from Egypt. A new creation, a new time for redemption, all that would come through this figure, Emmanuel, God with us. And so when we see Jesus' name, Emmanuel, God with us, it's actually not primarily about Jesus' divinity. Although surely Matthew is thinking that secondarily, but it's primarily speaking of one who would experience suffering and God's judgment even before they had grown up, which we're going to see happen next week in chapter two. We're going to, this, this, this God with us, this Emmanuel figure would be one who would be attacked by God's enemies so that through that judgment and through his righteousness, he would actually lead his people out of God's judgment in a new exodus, out of the darkness. And he would establish God's eternal kingdom to all nations, this new creation, a kingdom eventually free from sin, suffering, war and death. This is what's happening in the virgin birth. This is the genesis, the origin of God's eternal plan of redemption through his Messiah, through his King. God with us. Now, friends, this should give us an immense amount of assurance in the faithfulness of God. Despite our sin, despite our rebellion, despite Ahaz's sin and his rebellion in which we share, God sent Jesus into this world. The eternal son came into this world and the origin story is him as our king. Him as our Messiah, the one who would bring salvation and this new creation empowered by the Holy Spirit. Which links really well with Jesus' other name that Joseph is to call him and commanded to call him that we see in verse 21. Mary will give birth to a son and you are to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. Jesus is a Greek name for the Hebrew word Joshua. 
or we pronounce Yeshua, which just means Yahweh or God saves. And it's interesting there, as God commands Joseph to name him Jesus, what will the Messiah save us from? Matthew makes it clear, doesn't he? He will save his people from their sins. See, the biggest problem that humanity faces is not too much war. It's not global warming. It's not poverty. It's not even Satan. The biggest problem that actually leads to all those other problems, and it's actually central to why God himself through the Son in Jesus Christ came into this world to save us. He came to save us from our sin. He came to save us from the righteous judgment and death that our sin brings from God, which we all deserve, me included. Sin is this rebellion that we all have in the way we turn our backs on God and think we can rule life and be our own king. And that, friends, actually is deserving of God's eternal wrath. If you're in this world and you don't know Jesus as your king, then this is as good as it gets because when Jesus returns, it's all downhill from there. But friends, the good news is that Jesus came into this world to save us from our sin. He came, he's God with us. He came to give us the hope of a new creation so that when you put your trust in Jesus, this is the worst the world will ever get. When you put your trust in this king who died for us, then you have the hope of eternal life. It's all uphill when it comes to Jesus. And so again, this gives us great assurance that when we put our trust in this faithful God who's been carrying out this plan since eternity past, despite our sin, he's come into this world to die for us and to bring us to eternity. That should give us great assurance. Finally, in verse 24 to 25, Joseph obeys God and he carries out the two directives which God commanded him to follow. Have a look at verse 24. When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him and took Mary home as his wife. But he did not consummate their marriage until she gave birth to a son. And he gave him the name Jesus. Now, it's interesting here that Matthew implies that Mary doesn't stay a perpetual virgin, a virgin as uh, Roman Catholics teach. So you notice there in verse 25, Joseph did not consummate their marriage, aka have sex with, with Mary, even though he took her home, until she gave birth to Jesus. And that's a really important word until because it's, it gives the implication that after Jesus is born, they went at it and enjoyed God's good gift of sex. In fact, they did it at least four times by my account, according to Matthew 13, 55, which says, isn't this the carpenter's son? Isn't his um, mother's name Mary and aren't his brothers James, Joseph, Simon and Judas? So it seems Mary there has another four kids, James, Joseph, Simon and Judas, um, likely through Joseph. Um, and so we see here that Mary doesn't stay a perpetual virgin whatsoever. Um, but coming back to this miracle here that we see in the virgin birth, this miracle is an extraordinary moment in human history. It's the origin of the Messiah. When God's eternal son became Jesus, became fully human whilst remaining fully God. 
And he came as the Messiah, God with us, to save us from our sin. It is extraordinary. See, if Jesus had not been born of a human, we would not believe in his full humanity. But through the Spirit, Jesus was made like us in every way except for sin. Which means whatever suffering you're going through, whatever temptation you're going through, we have a God in Jesus Christ who can empathise with you. And he is unlike any other God in that respect, because all other gods are false anyway. But he is the only sinless human who could be our substitute and take our penalty for our sin. But if his birth were like any other human birth, through the union of a human father and a mother, we would question his sinlessness because every human father conceives a son or daughter with a sinful nature. It's the, the kind of flow and effects of original sin. Always that happens. And that's what we see in the genealogy before with Jesus, that all of them have skeletons in their life. There's skeletons in the Messiah's family. And so if Joseph was the real father of Jesus, or Mary had been sleeping around with Larry or whoever it was, Jesus would not be spotless. He would not be innocent. He would not be perfectly holy. He would be like his forefathers in the genealogy, another sinful king. And so we would be left without a mediator, without someone who could perfectly pay the penalty for the sin of humanity and in return give us his righteousness. But in the virgin birth, we have the only person who was eternally God and became man to be our perfect substitute because he was a sinless human who is then adopted into Joseph's family as one who fulfills the prophecies of the Messiah in the line of David. That is why at the end of verse 25, in obedience to God's command in verse 21, Joseph names him his son, Jesus. Matthew in this is highlighting this to tell us that Jesus now stands in the line of David as he's adopted into Joseph's family. And so, friends, this gives us great confidence, doesn't it? That God is still at work. You know, the recent census numbers, they show that belief in Christianity is declining and all that kind of stuff. All that's happening there is people are just who were once nominal or kind of like, oh, yeah, I liked the idea of being a Christian and just putting no religion or something like that now. But God is continuing to be at work in this world. And in fact, in Matthew 28, 16 to 20, God promises that he will still be with us until the end of this age, until Jesus returns. Matthew says, when they saw him, this is Jesus after his death and resurrection, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Friends, Jesus is always with us, no matter what you're going through. He is here with us. God is with us, our faithful God, working all things to his sovereign plan of redemption, growing his kingdom for the sake of his glory. And so what does he command us to do? Go and keep making disciples. Go and keep being obedient to everything I teach you. Worship me as your king. 
Let's be a people who continue to do that. Let me pray. Our Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you in the virgin birth here that we see Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us, your promised Messiah, who's come to bring about the new age of your spirit, the new creation. We thank you that Jesus was both fully God and fully human. And that as he's adopted into Joseph's line, he carries the mantle of David, God's promised forever king. We thank you that all of this was done by your sovereign work before the creation of the universe and that Jesus still stepped into the mess of this world and became fully human, came to save us despite our sin. We thank you that we see in Jesus that he is the one who took on our judgment for sins and paid the penalty for sins on the cross and in return has given us his righteousness and has adopted us into your family, God, so that we may now call you everlasting Father for all eternity as well. Thank you for this and help us to continue to obey you, making disciples, obeying everything you command us to and worshipping you with everything we've got. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.